an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 774. What you got on the Nerdist Community Corkboard, Katie? Yeah, I want to plug the Salinas Valley Comic Con. It is this weekend. It starts off uh, this Friday today, December 18th. And it's at the National Steinbeck Center on 1 Main Street, Salinas, California. You can find out info by going to steinbeck.org. They're going to have a lot of exhibits and vendors. It sounds like it's going to be... A really good time. And again, if you just go to Steinbeck.org and you search it, it'll, all the information will be there. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Katie Levine. No worries. Very excited. It's almost the end of the year. The holidays are upon us. Kyle oh, Clark oh, is... Oh. Santa Kyle! Yeah, that's me. That's, you seem aggressive. Yeah, I killed Santa and I drank his blood. Now I'm Santa Claus. What? Wow, that's... Yeah. It's like a dark turn for the Santa Claus franchise. Yeah, it really is, but it's a cool gritty reboot. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of gritty... I'm Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> You're watching. Oh, I just want to yell at it. I was about to say. I was about to. I was about to peg that as <laughs> the Santa Claus directed by the guest for this podcast, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, I would watch Tarantino's that. The Santa Claus. Oh God. Uh, Quentin was great. The movie is Hateful Eight. Is in theaters December 25th, and uh, it was basically just. Sitting around and nerding out with a film geek who was fuck, who happens to be Quentin Tarantino. Sometimes you really hope someone is what they're going to be, and then they are, and you're like, oh, good. The world is an own okay place. This man is just a man who rambles about film, and he's my favorite. Yeah. So, so cool. Hateful Eight, in theaters, December 25th. Here's the Nerdist Podcast, number 774, with Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Katie, roll the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. Man, oh, how you doing? nice to see you again. You too. Welcome. Hey, this is Matt. It's, uh, Matt. Hey, yes. nice to see you again. Kyle, get the door. Do you need anything? Any coffee or anything? Yeah, Do you want anything? Uh, a cup of tasty Nerdist coffee would uh, be terrific. Kyle, can I have a decaf cup of Nerdist coffee? Yeah. <laughs> With some. For me, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> and you're fired. Oh, I'll tell him when he gets back. What a terrible thing to tell someone. Bring it, and then... Oh, and then you... Fire him. Yeah, exactly. You need it. Uh, Thanks for sitting down with us. No, sure thing. No, this is... Because I know you're... This must be... You must be about to be in the busiest time. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, tomorrow, actually, the domestic press junket starts tomorrow. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. And then Flurry. Do you like that part of it? Um... (laughs) (laughs) 
you ask me now, no. All right? You know, uh, uh, when I'm doing it, it's not so bad. You know, it's you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, do you like the five? Do you like a ten mile run? Before you start, right? No, right. right. You know, but conceivably, once you get into it, you yeah, can you hit the drive, then you get on right. the other end of it. Right. If you feel good, you did it. it. Wasn't so bad. But that five minutes before you start the ten mile run, no, no, you don't like it. And at halfway all. through, when you want to throw up, <laughs> yeah, maybe exactly. You throw up. Yeah, but then you've kind of done half of it already. <laughs> yeah, hey, it was not bad. I only shit my pants once in that, yeah, in that, in that exactly. one time. Yeah, yeah, it's not that bad. Uh, Comic Con was really great this year. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun, and I was really honored that you asked me to moderate the panel but I had no idea when the request came in I was like how does he even know who I am or why I how I do these things I had uh-huh. no idea how you came upon me oh well it's I, actually I just uh, uh, um, uh, I know you do the the talking dead thing mm-hmm. uh, and I've seen that a few times uh, never like watching it from beginning to end but just seeing some bits of it sure. and everything but I've uh, but I really like you on At Midnight. Oh, thanks. I think you're really, I think you're really, really funny on oh, that show. I appreciate show. that. I Thank you very really much. I, I first like watched it just because I think Amber Tamlin was on it once. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, she's a friend of mine. All right, so I watched. It. Hey, this is kind of a funny fucking show, you know. And then if you know, uh, 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 Bridget Everett was on yep. it, and that was funny, you know. And she's so, amazing. Yeah. And so yeah, you've just been like, I just think uh, um, uh, you're just really funny on that show. And so they brought up a couple of people. You know that could do, and I go, hey, well, how about him? He's pretty, uh, he's he's pretty charming. I was so honored, and <laughs> and it was it was really fun. And and one of my favorite things about it was that before we were talking about what you wanted to do and how you wanted to conduct the panel, and mm-hmm. you said, well, we made this you know special seven minute. It's been put on YouTube since. Yeah, yeah. We made this seven minute film that sort of explains why mm-hmm. we shot this in Ultra Panavision seventy. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What the roadshow element of it, and uh, but you said I really just want to throw it to fan questions as quickly as possible. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think people really appreciate that, especially mm-hmm. in Hall H. Well, they've been waiting there for a long time and everything, you know. And it's, it's always seems like. Uh, we wax philosophically, you know, about, you know, usually with some guy who's just figuring it all out, all right? And then we, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then we do four or five or six. Okay, that's enough, guys. We got to yeah. clear out because whatever, you know, um, whatever's coming in, you know, uh, Supergirl, all right, you know, <laughs> is coming in, you know, and it's like, oh, man, these poor fucking guys, man. They've been right. sitting there waiting. <laughs> well, I, you know, a lot of it also has to do with the fact that sometimes you get panels, like, a lot of performers really don't love talking in front of 7,000 people, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't. They get super nervous, and the studios can get nervous. Like they don't know what yeah, questions yeah. are going to come up. But I don't know. Well, I you just... would try to. Well, you try to. Uh, well, I'm. I'm also pretty good at keeping the panel like on point, so it like doesn't devolve into a full cast DVD commentary giggle fest. Right. Where everyone's just <laughs> cracking their own selves up. Right? right. And like nothing is going out there. To right. The, to the people. But you, but you probably experience that a lot, though, where just the actors just want to make private jokes with each other. Well, actually, what I experience a lot is that they 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 can clam up because they well, it, particularly with with Hall H. There's a lot of movies that people aren't allowed to say things like you know with the Star Wars panels. Yeah, like yeah, they, yeah. What are they allowed to say? What are they not allowed to say? So they get very nervous. They mm-hmm. also, you know, some actors don't necessarily love talking as themselves in front of people, which yeah, was yeah, I yeah. assume they and choose to inhabit other characters. Yeah, yeah. And so there's there's a little bit of that, and then you know, I mean, I, but. On one hand, I understand that. On another hand, it's like 
Well, if you can't get it together for Comic Con at Hall H, then yeah, I guess you just can't get it together. I mean, it's the these most people have shown their enthusiasm yeah. to such a degree. I mean, you've there, already won. Is there ever an audience that will be more inclined to love you, you know, than the audience that has waited for hours to get into Hall H? Were you a Comic Con? You grew up in Los Angeles, yeah, yeah, primarily. Uh-huh. Did, mm-hmm. did did you ever did did you go to San Diego oh, Comic Con? Absolutely, I uh, absolutely did. It was you know. Just like uh, those dudes on uh, 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 The Big Bang. It was um, me and the Video Archives guys. It was like one of the highlights of our year. You know, we'd save up some money to usually buy posters and uh, they'd they'd buy more original art than I would. All right. You know, but but that was back in the day where you could literally um, stand in line and Jack Kirby could, uh, (laughs) you know, could draw uh, Captain America for you. Yeah. (laughs) Shit. You know, or Steve Ditko. All right. You know, uh, or uh, or Gene Colan could like draw Count Dracula. You know, for you or something. Uh, Steve Ditko could just yeah. do a quick uh, 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 Spider-Man. And all you just had to do was wait in line. And then you could actually talk to Jack Kirby. And, you know, if you were there for a couple of days, then he knew you. Like, hey, <laughs> it's that guy. How you doing? You know, hey, Jack Kirby. Hey, this is my wife. You know what I mean? You know, oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like, you know, and that was also like back in the day where it's like uh, um, people would go to Comic-Con and um, – they literally try to get into the industry. You know, they'd they'd have those yeah. panels or those those. I mean, where you could show your artwork to the Marvel people or the oh right yeah uh, the gold key people or right. <laughs> yeah, work on this. You've read how yeah. to draw comics the Marvel way. Yeah, so yeah, you have yeah. All that constructed. Exactly. Yeah. You know that uh, I know San Diego is so it is it is pretty crowded. It's still a great con. WonderCon's pretty great too because mm-hmm. it hasn't completely been taken over by industry yet yeah, uh-huh. and so I even just a couple years ago waited in line and had Ralph Bakshi sign a cell from Wizards oh and, wow that's awesome and, and, yeah. he, and he was totally you know just like talk to people it was exactly that experience yeah he like I did a, a, a forward they did a book about uh, Ralph Bakshi and I did the forward to it and he gave me this Awesome cell from Coonskin. Oh, wow. All right. That has, you know, uh, a Br'er Fox, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear together, and they're walking down some, you know, Harlem Street. It's really neat. Holy it's really shit. Cool. So, uh, when, but you were born in Tennessee, right? I was born in Tennessee, but I was raised pretty much in Los Angeles. Got it. In Los Angeles County, yeah. So, what was the, I, I, I heard George Lucas say something. Are we on, by the way? Yeah, this started, oh, okay, this started okay, a while ago. Okay, okay. uh-huh. uh, it, just, it just sort of eases in. Yeah, so no, apparently. Okay. Good. I thought we were waiting for the coffee, all right? Like, well, no, that'll happen. That'll happen. I, 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 this is actually kind of good. We should start this. <laughs> but, but I always feel like we should. By the way, I love how animated you were when you thought we weren't recording. Yeah. <laughs> good for you. Because like we, we talked, but it was the same thing where we talked, but I'd never met you before. And even just in the five minutes before mm-hmm. the, the Hateful Eight panel, there was. The, the last time I saw enthusiasm like that before a panel was Harold Ramis. Mm-hmm. And then you, you meet this – and then you see how excited you're and go, oh, yeah, th- he is a le- just a legitimate fan of this of movies and, and, and just likes these things. He's oh, just a fanboy. Well, well we had a uh, – it was funny because we had a whole big thing for Django and Chain at, at Comic-Con. Uh, they had created this little western town. And uh, across the street from yeah. uh, the convention center, and you had to see people that had Django shit on, and then you'd get this little coin that could get you in there. And um, so we had we did some sort of a panel, and I think we showed a thing at uh, Hall H, and we had this big Django town. And I, I show up there with uh, Jamie, and then and the the fan. I don't think the thing was easily the first time he went to Comic Con. I mean, he later went again for the Spider Man movie. He did. Right, but that was his first time, and he was kind of taken aback by the whole thing. Like he was just kind of taking it in, and I was like, you know, Jamie, I've. I've I've been to crowds where they've been your crowd <laughs> and your people. All right. 
this is my people. <laughs> this is what it's like when you're with the Quittance people. He goes, oh, yeah, man, I, I see it. I see it. They might drool in you a little bit, but it's all out of love. Uh, yeah, right. It is an incredibly supportive environment. No, but it was like, you know, it, it's uh, – um, no, it, it's it's real fun to go down there. I mean, actually, it, it's it's also fun to be a director that has a situation where, uh, uh, you know – on one hand, I'm considered a, a serious filmmaker, and the films, uh, 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 hopefully they do well uh, both at awards and hopefully they do well at the box office and everything. But I'm also a, a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. You know, the teenagers yeah. know who I am and everything, and, and, uh, and uh, the, the genre fanatics, you know, uh, uh, count my movies in the, uh, you know, on their uh, – DVD shelf. Does it ever weird you out? I mean, just having because I think part of the reason that happens is people think of you as like, oh, he's one of us. Yeah, yeah. You know, he worked at videos. He understands more about this specific art form mm-hmm. than probably most people in the world, and he was able to use that to then express his love of him. So they see you as one of them. Does it ever weird you out that now some young kid is in a video store and like, oh my god, Quentin Tarantino came in and he talked to me for like a minute? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well. Um, Coffee's here, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah coffee's here. exciting moment. Well, nothing would be more exciting if they were in a video store and that happened, but I don't think that's happening anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe you should go to people's houses while they're browsing yeah. Netflix. <laughs> oh, you're streaming there, buddy, huh? Yeah, right, exactly. What are you streaming there? <laughs> yeah. But no, no, I, uh, no, it doesn't weird me out at all. No, it's just, in a good way. No, it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it, no, it, it's, it, it's really cool to, uh, to have that, I mean, like one of the things that, uh, and I haven't tried to do it. It's just one of the things that I guess I've been lucky about. Uh, but it has happened, and it's kind of, and it's 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 pretty groovy. Um, is uh, you know, I, I, for for lack of a better expression, I've always kind of considered myself. Uh, 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 I'm getting less and less young as the years go on, uh, but I consider myself a young person's. Uh, filmmaker, I make films that, in particular, young people respond to to one degree or another. I deal in genres that, I mean, even if they don't think they want to respond to it, like westerns or war films and uh, and glorious bastards. But one of the things that's been really, really neat is uh, when it comes to uh, my young fan base. Uh, without trying to, I've just as the different generations have happened in my 22 years of filmmaking, I keep renewing it. Yeah, with the next group of high school yeah. kids. Yeah, basically, you know, I guess if you know if if high school lasts four years, and I guess basically every four years there's a new new crop that's coming out there, and so far so good for these last twenty two years, as I've always been able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, reacquaint my purchase. Yeah, we uh, with we, those uh, those fans. We had Columbia House when I was growing up. You know, they'd send a videotape every month, yeah, yeah. and they sent Pulp Fiction. And I was 11, mm-hmm. and I before my mother knew what it was, I popped it in and watched it, and I loved it, and I was like, we're keeping this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever pay Columbia House back? I'm sure my mother handled that. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, no, he's talking about doing it legit. Okay? I used to do the Columbia Record and Tape Club, where you get the 11, you get the 11 records and for a penny, and then just deal with collection agencies for the next two or three years. Then they'd forget about it. Then you do it all over again. So every three years, you got 11 records for free. 
And you just had to be able to put up with a really nasty, nasty uh, collection agency letter. Well, this letter. one has a red border on it. They must be mad. Oh, yeah. And they could write a mean letter. Yeah, sure. When you're 13, you're reading it. Oh, wow. But then you realize, like, they can't do shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you're 13 years old, you can commit a serious violent yeah. crime, and then you go to juvie for a couple of years. Yeah. Like, there's really not that's going to happen to you for the Columbia Record House. It, Having said that, though, hearing you talk about the video club, like, oh, so that's what happens if you did it, the, you right did it way. the right way. If you actually did it legit, <laughs> like would, your mom did it. Yeah, that they would, would be... send you something. Every month, you'd get a video. And, like, I remember Terminator 2 was one of them, and then... Pulp Fiction came and like if you didn't if you didn't say something then okay I bought it yeah, yeah. all right yeah. you had to buy so many every couple of yeah. years I, I read them yeah I never I never went by the rules but I read them oh these are the one I'm breaking oh good yeah, you're gonna make sure I know oh yeah no and like oh here's yeah. the Art Garfunkel yeah. uh, record that I didn't order okay that I'm not I'm gonna just ignore all this stuff yeah. so now I have this Art Garfunkel record but if it was like milk, if it was like milk money I'd be like send it back yeah <laughs> so instead of stealing so instead of Blank stealing yeah, I don't need Hillary Duff. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I got a Pulp Fiction and blank check. Those are the double features. Well, I mean, he saved the cat. I... Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Uh, there, there's, uh, there, I'm sure there's a hole in your Ed Harris collection. <laughs> we got, uh, we got uh, blue is the warmest color and baby's day out. Oh, what a great night. What a great night. But I, I think it's like before but it was people... cool of my mom to let me watch and keep yeah. Pulp Fiction at 11. <laughs> Well, she probably didn't. I mean, she probably did. Had she seen it? No, of course. Yeah, not. so why of course, would she see that? Like, She's oh, this is fun. It has fiction in the title. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but you know, but it's also kind of a, you know. But there's an interesting thing there because, like, you know, in particularly in the '90s, you know, I could have just been pegged as the pulp fiction guy for the rest of my career sure. because mm-hmm. it was such a phenomenon. Those kind of things, they're amazing when they happen. I never expected, you know, almost all the directors I like their stuff. You know, got more respected as time went on. Right. right. You know, and that, and then that, uh, especially in the fifties um, and sixties and seventies, that was the the that was the way it was for like uh, more genre. Yeah. Who do you who, who do you think uh, is the best example of that that maybe didn't pop in their time? Well, uh, um, well, I mean, some of these guys popped. They just didn't quite get the universal acclaim. Right. I mean, Sergio Leone popped. So much with the spaghetti yeah. westerns that he created an entire subgenre right. based on his films. But it's not like you know the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and Variety were ever talking about it, how what an innovative, magnificent director he was. It wasn't like Good and the Bad and the Ugly was being nominated for Best Picture. Right. All right. I mean, Jesus Christ. Even uh, you know uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch in 1969 didn't make Best Picture. All right. Oliver won Best Picture. <laughs> I like Oliver. I'm not making fun of Oliver. Uh, 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 doesn't hold a flickering birthday candle to the Wild. <laughs> Wild Bunch, uh, especially, you know, cut to 2015. But, you know, I, mean, I don't even think Wild Bunch was in consideration, yeah. you know, for serious awards back then, um, which is just unfathomable. Um, so to actually, you know, create that kind, you know, uh, uh, to get that kind of acclaim fairly universally uh, to one degree or another, which is something I didn't expect. And so I was going to, I was bound and determined to enjoy it because it's just a rare instance but then also there was also just the exciting pulp culture aspect of 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 pulp fiction just plugging into the zeitgeist yeah, yeah. and so it was uh, a jumping off point for a whole lot of people it was a cultural turning point and you know 
that just happens. That's a phenomenon. You can't expect There's sort of an accidental happen. thing that happens, especially because mm-hmm. right, you know, at the beginning of the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, with Reservoir Dogs, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, this is this is a style of filmmaking that is, mm-hmm. this is going to define this decade. We're in a new decade and this that, is going to help you know, define uh, that. And well, it was an, an interesting time as far as that was concerned because it was also coinciding, literally running parallel tracks with the whole alter- alternative music scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, emphasized by, you know, Seattle and Pearl Jam and uh, uh, Nirvana and places like you know, groups like that, uh, and they were really running parallel tracks with each other, uh, and and in both cases coming off of uh, a, a, um, a decade where the industry was very repressive. Yeah, uh, you know, eighties uh, 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 music was very commercialized. Yeah. at that point, and I think eighties. Uh, uh, Hollywood cinema. I think '80s is the worst decade, all right. <laughs> of uh, with the '50s being the second worst, all right, in the history of Hollywood. Even though you know, but the only movies from the '80s that I find myself really, really holding on to. I mean, there's, there's definitely some gems in there. Sure. Like Die Hard is a gem and stuff. Robocop. You know, yeah, but it's well, oddly enough, it's the silly comedies. Yeah. are the, the the silly comedies from the '80s are the ones that like you remember the most. They're the ones you have the most affection for. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I can debate that they're great filmmaking. But I remember when I, I did a, a, um, Death Proof, we just kept – we had a whole thing going on on the crew. We were just kept saying stupid jokes or stupid lines from comedies of that era. And we, we, we filled the whole day. We just talked <laughs> like that all the time. We, we used lines from Airplane and used cars and Airplane 2, you know, uh, uh, and the couch trip or, you know, or oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah, couch any, trip. Yeah, well, yeah, any of those Saturday Night Live, Dr. Detroit, any of those Saturday Night Fucking Live Dr. movies. Dr. Detroit, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> oh, that movie was amazing. Well, you know, one of the things that we were talking about that we ended up having a big conversation about was how uh, in um, – now, Airplane 2, the stuff that was in the foreground of Airplane 2 is only okay. But the background <laughs> gags in Airplane 2 are classic. Yeah. I mean, fantastic. And the one that's just like the, that cracks me up the most is like, so Robert Stack or a Lloyd Bridges character or a Chuck Connors or somebody like that, he's got a cup of coffee literally like this in his hand. And like, ah, enough. And just throws it off screen. And then there's a beat and you hear somebody... My eyes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, this was a podcast. I was I was pantomiming, taking my coffee cup and th- and tossing the. Coffee I mean, out. we were really, <laughs> we really got taken there. We were really taken there for a second. My eyes! Damn this non-visual medium! These people have been deprived. Yeah, I know it is. And uh, I got to see Airplane in a big theater, and mm. and every joke still holds up. Mm. Every joke absolutely oh, holds up. Well, you know, I um. You know, I own and program uh, the New, New Beverly, Beverly. Yes, here in You're doing a great uh, job Los Angeles. There, oh, thank you. It's so I'm great. Really proud of it. It's I'm great. Really, really proud. And uh, not to get too sentimental, it brings me a lot of joy. It really, really does. And uh, uh, I work my even while I'm making this movie, I work my ass off on the schedule and getting it oh, just wow. right and whatever. And uh, but you know, I find that like when I do program, in particularly, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Comedy type movies, in particularly from the seventies and eighties, it's just the audience is just so appreciative of them. Yeah. They just show up and they have just the best, best time. I think uh, we had a smash screening uh, a little bit ago of uh, um, Airplane and Used Cars. Oh, wow. They actually both opened up on the same day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. back in uh, I think it was either eighty one or eighty two. I think it was yeah. eighty one, and yeah, yeah. and an Airplane was an instant. 
Well, that was the thing. That's how I remember it because it was uh, it was in August is when it opened, and that was the pattern back then in the summer. And it, it's it's. Was it the drudge of August? Like no, no, no. It wasn't that at all. What it was was it, it was kind of interesting, and it, it exists. It exists to this. I, I, you tell me. I think it exists right now too, but not quite as specific as it was back then, where you had all your big noise mm-hmm. come out in the late May, mm-hmm. and the big noise would come out in June, and big noise would come out in in July, and. And July never seemed like that great of a month because actually people were having big noise fatigue by that point in time. But that always set up August for the sleeper. Yeah. You know, not the big franchise movie or something. You're not going to release the new Indiana Jones movie then. All right. But the sleeper, in particular comedy that could come out that was an audience pleaser. Uh, but you know, it would be, still be a surprise that it would do well. But then those movies would go out and do like a hundred million dollars. But that was the situation where it was airplane opened and used cars opened, and one of them was going to do well, and one of them was going to play to crickets. Right. And in that case, it was used cars that played to crickets at airplane that. I love used cars. Through the roof. Yeah. Yeah, they're both. I mean, it's still. In what's great is that that was also the dawn of the home video market too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. They started realizing, oh, well, just because a movie doesn't kill in the box office doesn't mean that it can't have the second We can life send one of these every month to Matt's mom. <laughs> no, but that's a, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but that was actually, no, but that ended up becoming a big thing, actually, insofar as, um, and I like using the word insofar as whenever I get into shit. Uh, 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 you, got the, you got a neat opportunity of, um, yeah, maybe the movie didn't do so well at the theaters, but then with home video. People get a chance to catch up with it at home video, then it plays on HBO and Cinemax or those channels. And then you cut to five years later, seemingly everybody had seen the movie. Right. I mean, I always thought, especially in the 80s, that there were some movies that didn't do well at the theaters that if you did a sequel to it six or seven years later, that that sequel could have actually done business. Right. Because the film had done so well. I mean, they tried that with, like, Eddie and the Cruisers, and it didn't quite work. (laughs) 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 And if you've seen the original Eddie and the Cruisers, then you know, as good as Michael Perret was, it was all about Tom Berenger as the word... Oh, the dog The word man, all right? That was... Wow, you can't have Eddie and the Cruisers part two without the word man. Wasn't Rick Moranis in that? He was? Wasn't Rick Moranis in... No, that's the streets of Fire. Streets of Fire. You're Streets absolutely right. I was mixing up my Michael Perret movies. But like, for instance, though, uh, well, you only had two to mix up, so that's all good. <laughs> I, I mean, picked the wrong one. Well, at, least, at least theatrical releases, anyway. <laughs> all right. Uh, um, but uh, uh, but I remember um, not a whole lot of people. I don't really quite have the affection for this movie that I had then. Uh, and I think the only reason I had the affection for it was because it was just so fucking weird that uh, uh, I, I couldn't even believe anyone made it. But in the 80s, they came out with that movie, uh, uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Yes. yes. All right. And I was a, I remember literally seeing the first show, first day of Buckaroo Banzai that evening, and literally the audience not knowing what to make of this. Right. What the fuck are we watching? And even I was saying, what the fuck are we watching? But I was still kind of appreciating it. But like, there's no way you can even remotely understand Buckaroo Banzai from the first viewing of it. So imagine sitting, you know, at the UA in Westwood, uh, the, the Friday night date audience. And like, what the fuck is this shit? But then on video, people watched it again and again, and they kind of got to know... Uh, uh, the different uh, uh, plot threads and stuff. And I'd always said back in that time that, you know, four years in 
to Buckaroo Banzai's video release that uh, if the studio did a cool teaser trailer for Buckaroo Banzai 2 but hadn't committed to making the movie yet, back when back when trailers were really important when they played in front of the movies mm. at the weekend, you know, if you played that trailer at, at, at a big packed audience at the village in Westwood, the audience would have went nuts. If they had saw yeah. a trailer for Buckaroo Bonsai and the World Crime League. Remember? Because they, they promised a sequel at right. the end of the movie. Right, right, right. All right. Watch for Buckaroo Bonsai versus the World Crime League. We're waiting. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean. I mean, like, uh, they don't have to make it now. I'm over it now. I mean, that was my whole thing when I finally saw um, the Speed Racer movie. Uh, <laughs> so I saw the Speed Racer movie. And I'm not really digging it. But they're. But they are committing to doing the weird mythology of Speed Racer to right. some degree or another. Uh, uh, and so I'm watching it and I'm like, well, uh, you know, uh, I've waited a long, long time <laughs> to see a Speed Racer movie and I wish they could have got their shit together before I was 48. <laughs> I'd been watching Speed Racer since I was six. They could have got their shit together before I was 48. I don't know if they would have... That was 40 years they had to get their shit together. I don't think the 80s would have done well with a Speed Racer movie, though. Peter Weller would have been a perfect... Peter Weller would have been... Uh, Racer X. Yes. Johnny Depp, would, Johnny Depp would have been Speed Racer. Peter Weller would have been perfect Racer X. I beg to differ, Mr. Hart. Okay, I, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I bow to your superiority. That it. is absolutely... I love it. <laughs> actually, when in the early 90s... We should still do that now. Well, in the 90s, I actually read... That, that, the reason I know who the fuck he is... Uh, well, the, the reason I first knew who the fuck he was was Richard Donner was trying to produce a Speed Racer movie. He didn't want to direct it. It was him and his wife, Lauren, were producing it. And, uh, and I read the script... And I really, really liked it. It was right after Pulp Fiction. And, uh, and the script was better than the movie that they ended up doing. Uh, and it's a different script entirely. But they really captured it. They captured the comic book. You know who wrote it? J.J. Abrams. Oh, my yeah. God. His script was terrific. That's how I – like, oh, yes, the guy wrote regarding Henry. You know, uh, And it just never they – just, uh, yeah, they, they just never got, it, never got it off the ground. But he cracked it. He What's he doing out. now? Yeah. Is he available yeah. to do a thing? Yeah, he's, uh, he's got some un- – He's got a space movie coming out. That's and- his end game is to get the Speed Racer movie made. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about it – the thing that would be weird is, is – look, he's the one that actually, you know – Faced a bunch of blank pages and wrote it. I'm just sure he's outgrown it now. Yeah. All right, as good as it is, I've outgrown it. I don't want to do it now. All right, but there was a time where that would have just been perfect. You know, what? I mean, one of the things I wanted to do after, uh, before Pulp Fiction, for to some degree or another, um, I'd started writing Pulp Fiction, so I was going to do that. But the but one of the outside projects that I considered doing was doing a Luke Cage movie. Oh shit! Well, Luke Cage was was you know was my hero uh, when I was a kid uh, collecting comic books. He was my favorite character, and I collected all the Luke Cage comics. And I thought, always thought that I always made I always made them into a movie in my head. Yeah, you know, every time I watched them, and that was actually the thing about like I, I really liked about comics is, um, you know, uh, especially when I was younger, you know, as opposed to reading novels and turning them into movies, which. I do to this day. I can't help it. Every time I, it takes me a while to, to read a novel to some degree or another because I'm always making it into a movie and I'm, I'm literally fig- figuring out how I would structure it. Uh, but I used to do that with comic books. And so 
I didn't really respond to comic books like uh, Doctor Strange or anything like that because I just couldn't imagine how you would film all that stuff. And I never even really figured out how how you could really do Spider-Man just the right way with the you know the way uh, his running monologue that he has as he kicks six <laughs> guys' asses. I never kind of figured out how to do that. You know, so I always liked the comic books that were a little bit more closer to movies anyway, like Werewolf by Night mm-hmm. or Tomb of Dracula or uh, uh, Morbius the Living Vampire, uh, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Uh, you know, those were, uh, Luke Cage, those were the comic books that I, I loved the most because I could see those as movies. Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. I, I, those were always my favorites, and I always was making them into movies in my head and casting them and stuff. Well, and why were you never, why did you never do any of that? Well, you know, the thing is, in the case of uh, Luke Cage... It was my comic geek friends that almost talked me out of it because uh, I thought Larry Fishburne back in the day would have mm. been a great Luke Cage. And they were talking about Wesley Snipes. And, and I could see them both. But it was like, oh, but, you know, uh, um, I, I think Fish would be better. And they go – yeah, but I mean, you know, and look, he could work out and everything, but he doesn't have the bod, you know, that uh, 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 Wesley Snipes has. And, and Luke Cage needs to have the bod. And I literally was so turned off oh. that that would be their, their both starting and ending point. Right. You know, mm. that it literally put it, I don't know if I'm ever going to do it, but it literally put it in my head that. If I do a comic book movie, it should be an original character. It should be something I create rather than try to fit in. Mm -hmm. To a canon and get in all the – yeah. I mean – but that's – I think that's what's so – one of the other reasons why I think you're so embraced by our particular subculture is because you constantly seem to make choices just because you want to do them and it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like you've ever been seduced to – Crossover, like you really just make seems like you just oh he wanted to write about this so he wrote and directed this. No, I mean, well, I mean there there is that aspect in my filmography which um, <laughs> I don't shouldn't be that standout, but as time has gone on, proved to be quite standout. You know, is uh, I'm just uh, drawn to whatever the next subject, the next group of characters, the next genre that I want to explore is. And then I have a a lot of mania for it at that time. And especially, I mean, with the last, not this one, but with the last uh, five movies I did, I thought I was creating a little empire with them to some degree or another. I mean, when I was writing Kill Bill, I thought, okay, well, I'll do a new Kill Bill movie. Uh, well, that was back when it was going to just be one movie. Mm-hmm. I thought I, I'd do it. Uh, uh, I would do a Kill Bill trilogy, and I would do one then, and then, then I'd do another one ten years from now, and I'd pick it up with uh, Uma's character where she was ten years, and then I'd do a third one ten years after that, and then so I'd just check in on it every ten years, and then I planned on doing uh, um, a sort of more immediate. Anime sequel of uh, the Bride's Adventures. Oh, where wow. I could have done some of the stuff that I, I wasn't able to do in the movie sequences that I left out. But then I even had a whole idea of a whole uh, uh, anime feature about the origin of Bill. 
mm. and his whole story. And you know, uh, you in the course of Kill Bill, you, you you meet the three different father figures that he had, i.e., Hattori Hanzo, Pai Mei, and then uh, Esteban Vejo. And you would see how all that happened. You'd see how Bill got turned over to the dark side to some degree or another. Hattori uh, uh, Hanzo is uh, is sort of the Obi Wan Kenobi in that situation, but Pai Mei is the Darth Vader, who's he's more evil and takes him into this dark place. And, you know, Bill, I never really elaborate on it, but to me, Bill was just, was like um, uh, a master villain, like a, like a Fu Manchu right. type of kid. Like the way Fu Manchu is in uh, Shang-Chi, uh, uh, Master of Kung Fu. Yeah. You know, uh, he was one of the great, you know, or Fantomas uh, <laughs> out of uh, France. You know, like the great, or Kingpin in right. uh, uh, Daredevil, you know, the... Overlord, all right, of crime. And, uh, um, and uh, so that was kind of always my conception of Bill. But then after I get through doing Kill Bill, I'm fucking sick of it, all right? <laughs> and you got to move on. <laughs> Me and whom are sick of each other. We're sick of it. And, like, uh, uh, we need a break. Um, in the case of Inglorious Bastards, uh, or in the case of Grindhouse, if it had been successful, we talked about, oh, like, every three years we'll do another Grindhouse thing. And that didn't happen. And then uh, uh, in the case of Inglorious Bastards, uh, oh, I can do a prequel of Inglorious Bastards where, you know, before that happens where they're fighting and then I can do this and then I could do uh, after the war, uh, Aldo and some of the bastards are fighting the clan. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, 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 Django, I, I, and Django, I really considered, I didn't really want to do other movies of Django per se, but I like the idea of um, Django having other adventures, and I explored the idea of doing a Django paperback, a series of Django paperbacks, oh, where it would huh. just be other adventures, yeah. you know, of him. Because I always thought that was really neat, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, like Splinter in a Mind's Eye or something. Yeah. That was always really cool. I, I remember reading when I was a kid, Splinter Minds like, why aren't they making this? This is like a, it read like a movie. I was a big Alan Dean Foster fan, you know, who wrote all that stuff. Well, do you, is it? I'd like to see a Schultz like backstory. Well, I did. I mean, I don't know if I was ever serious about doing it, doing it, but uh, I wasn't so much interested. Uh, yeah, a Schultz backstory would be cool. I, I still had more Schultz. Uh, Schultz Django adventures. I, I could have gone my, into. He was my favorite. I'll say this. I've, I've said it before, but he was my favorite. Movie character since Quint. Oh wow, that's like, cool. I fucking. Well, why? why? So, I don't know. It, there was something about him that I found just endearing, mm-hmm. and I just really just enjoyed his sort of his his moral center mm-hmm. seemed to be more defined than I think I've seen previously. Mm-hmm. And I also just really enjoyed how he treated Django and sort of took him under his wing and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I loved so much so that, like, I pre-ordered the NECA figure. I have it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah that they pulled off the shelves. Yeah, but I, you have it. I have it at yeah, home, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just, I loved it. And well, I mean, Christoph cl- Waltz is so good. Well, frankly, the closest thing I've, I've done to that has been the, uh, um, uh, the Django Zorro comic mm. that I did. You know, and that actually, that literally is the only real sequel that I've ever done to any of my stuff. I came up with the story and uh, uh, we did it with Matt Wagner and it was, uh, we did really well with it. It was really fun. We had, I had a good time and that yeah. was, that was neat exploring that a little bit. Yeah. You were talking about when you, when you kind of, when you kind of focus on an idea and you get the mania for it, how do you sustain the mania when the filmmaking process takes so long? And especially, it seems like your idea, how do you shut out all the million other ideas that are flooding your head when you know you have to focus and make one thing? Oh, that's a good question, but that's actually not that difficult insofar as um, 
before I settle in on what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm contemplating a lot of different things. Oh, there's that book that I've always wanted to turn into a movie. Maybe I'd start reading that again and go over my old notes. Uh, uh, I, I explore some different ideas, you know, see what stage in the incubator <laughs> that they are at, at any given time, especially when I'm looking for inspiration. Uh, I'm always, like, working on some film book project to some degree or another that it, Moves along by a, you know a couple of inches yeah. <laughs> between each movie. I'm never in any hurry to do it's them. Play tectonics. Just... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just say, well, oddly enough, it actually um, that usually breeds what I'm going to do next to some degree or another because I'm working on I work on different film book projects and stuff, and um, I love that type of writing and I like the research that goes into that type of writing and um, and it brings me a lot of joy. But it's not as easy for me as screenplay story writing is. And um, so it's much more difficult. Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm working harder at it, and I'm working harder at it. And at some point, I've invested a lot in it, and it's hard, and then I, you know, uh, what am I doing? This is so <laughs> difficult. Nobody is waiting for this. This is just for me, and I'm working so hard. And then I start trying to write a script or a story, and by comparison... It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy that uh, I'm kind of off and running, you know, from that point on. Um, but in the case of what you're asking about, is I, you know, I, I flirt and you know, it's almost a, a metaphor for falling in love. You date a lot of people and you flirt with a lot of people and everything's going great. Um, but then you meet the right one, and once you once once I realize that, oh, okay, uh, this has grabbed me. And oh, this this is genuinely legit. And now I'm, maybe I'm thinking about music choices for it, and trying to find different music choices for it, and web spinning about it, and maybe it gets me to actually start writing a little bit. And pretty shortly into that process, I'll probably end up writing something that's like, okay, I'm doing this now. This is this is now what I'm doing. Uh, uh, usually because I'm I think it's so whatever I've written is so good that I yeah. like okay the. This deserves to be explored. Um, in the case of Django, the way that happened happened very organically. Uh, I had really no idea what I was going to do after Inglorious Bastards, and uh, but I'd had the idea for Django and Chain in my head for a long, long time. The idea of like a spaghetti westernist black bounty hunter going and still killing, uh, arresting or killing people during slave times, and um, so I was. Uh, uh, I was in um, Japan doing my press on the uh, on uh, Inglorious Bastards, and Japan was like the last stop on the trip. So I'd kind of just I'd done everything. This was my last official thing to do, and so I was there with a friend of mine, and we were in Japan. I had a day off, and I got pointed in the direction of a really cool soundtrack store. And in Japan, there, uh, uh, there there's a, a really big niche following for spaghetti westerns they call them macaroni westerns and they're still real popular and a lot of the a lot of the spaghetti westerns you can't find in america you can get in japan and almost all the soundtracks are available to one degree or another so i loaded up on a bunch of cd soundtracks and so then on my day off i you know you know how you do when you buy a bunch of records at a record store you come home and you just start playing them and you're walking around and you're just zoning out and blissing out and uh and so being Bombarded with all these Morricone, Riz Ortolani, uh, sound, uh, for, uh, Francesco Damasi soundtracks, um, I ended up sitting down 
And I didn't even have – normally I have my notebooks with me and shit, but I didn't have anything. So I literally was using the hotel stationery at the you know, Tokyo Nico or whatever it was and uh, wrote the opening scene. Of Django and Chain, where you know they're on the slate, they're on the the chain gang. They're walking through, and then the the the, uh, the wagon yeah. shows up, and it's Schultz, and he's looking, and he has the conversation with the brittle brother or the, uh, the Speck brothers, and the, the, pretty much the way it is in the movie was how it was written on the little desk wow. in the hotel room on the hotel stationery, and uh, and you know, and it was a good scene, and it set it at all, it set it off, and I I wanted to know more, and so I knew. Halfway into that scene, oh, I guess this is Django and Cheney's been in my head for a long time, and I guess now is the time. Wow! But that's an interesting way to put it. You said you wanted to know more, almost as yeah. though, like as you're writing, you're sort of the writing is you're you're discovering along as it's coming out. Well, I think that's really is the the way you really need to do it. Now, once I got done with that scene, I mean, uh, it's it's one of the benefits of um, of starting with a classical on its own scene like the opening scene of, of Inglorious Bastards or the opening scene of Django that can literally be a scene unto itself now where do I want to go from right. here becomes the question but in that moment at that situation oh no that's just good enough right that is that is on its own and what I've learned as time has gone on is um, for a long time I tried to think out everything in the story even though I know things would completely change as I, as I go on. However, now I've realized that it's not really – it doesn't do me much good to think too much past the middle. I mean I might know where I want to go. I mean it, you know, I write genre pieces. So you have an idea what the third act's going to be, uh, you know, and Kill Bill. I guess she'll probably kill Bill at the end. <laughs> uh, you, know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, she's got a list. She's going to work down the list, all right? So the big choice is, well, who's who on the list? All right? Um, and even, I fuck, even that I fucked around with, all right? Um, but um, – uh, but, you know, a genre movie, you think you know where you're going and you're probably right and you have an idea of how you might want the ending to end as for, you know, for both a movie and for an audience. But for the most part, you can kind of work out more or less what's going to get you to the middle. But to think beyond that is kind of silly because um, by the time you get to the middle when you've actually been writing it, well – it's a different story now. It's mm. a different thing now. now. Now, you are the characters. You know the characters. Things that you could never have known before you started yeah. writing are now – they're in your blood. It's like this entire – you know, there is a mythology to my movies to some degree or another. And that mythology is delivered as, as I write. And I might have a, a, a checklist of things that I might want to do during the course of the time. But some of them you know, are, you know, uh, become irrelevant. Yeah. As you go on and when other ones take their place and some things that you thought could have been a big deal, well, they are a big deal. And some things you – about maybe half the reason you wanted to write it. By the time you get to where that would happen, eh, it's for something else. It's not for this. Um, but by the time you get to the middle, that's where you want to be. You want to have the, be this expert. You want to be in the middle of the story. You want to know who these people are. And now with all this knowledge, now you figure out – where you want to go for the second half. But that's an interesting that's an interesting approach to writing being like you have to be a good listener and you have to listen to your own characters once they're fully once they're mostly formed. Well, frankly, I only think it's screenwriters who think you're not supposed to do it yeah, that do you way. Out, do, you right? do you outline? <laughs> no, not really. See, I, I don't mean, either. I just write. Yeah, you just write. I mean, you know, it's like I mean uh 
I mean, some novelists, the more commercial novelists, you know, uh, 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 write. I think like John Grisham or somebody, they write outlines because they don't want to get to that final chapter and go, "Oh my God, what the fuck do I do yeah. now?" <laughs> All right. Um, I trust in, oh my God, what the fuck am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I think that is part of it. You know, now I'll go, I don't write a novel a year the way he does, and the, there's a reason for that. Uh, but I am trusting that I will know exactly what to do right. when I get there from having done the work, one way or the other. You know, and, uh, but it's that trust. You have to trust. You have to trust, you know, that it's going to be there. Yeah. When you reach out. It's unfortunate that when you were talking about buying albums and kind of soundtracking and listening, it's unfortunate people don't listen to albums the way that they used to because I remember being in college and not just loving the movie, but listening to the Reservoir Dog soundtrack was in my, like that CD, just because mm-hmm. of the way it was, it was DJed and the whole, yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. Was a, it was a whole experience and you kind of needed to listen to it that way mm-hmm. and it, it, it completely sucked you into the, to the world. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, where that probably uh, the last bastion of that existing is, is I guess, in people's cars, mm. if they don't just plug in their iPhone, right? Well, not iPhone, but iPod to the car. But if they, if they still have the little rotation carousel you know, <laughs> going on, and your little folder of CDs, uh, yeah, right, right exactly, there, yeah. all scratched up. Well, yeah, no, it's just, yeah, it's it's you know, uh, um, you know, again, that's just you know. Uh, yeah, I think a lot is you know I think a lot is 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 lost in something like that. I mean, like for instance, it's even something about the fact from having worked at a video store. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not connected to Netflix. I mean, not because I'm a, a, a snob. I don't really need to be. I, I I when the video store went out of business, I have all those videos. So I have a huge collection of of, of films at home, both on DVD and and video and even Laserdisc. Uh, and also, I I am. Uh, um, I pay for all the movie – pay movie channels, you know, mm-hmm. so all the different Cinemaxes and all the different HBOs and I even got the Sony and MGM channel. Yeah. Those are really cool. They, they show some really interesting stuff. The, the Universal United one's States. great. Yeah. I really like well, the Universal one just shows TV now all the time. It's always house. <laughs> oh, they have started showing house a lot. <laughs> no, it's You're a right. fucking drag. You're right. It's a fucking drag. Quentin, it's never lupus. <laughs> it's never lupus. You're totally right. They do show house a shit ton now. <laughs> you know, yeah, the Sony one shows yeah. fucking movies. All right? shows Columbia movies from the 70s. God, I love yeah. the laser display. My, yeah, yeah. My, my grandfather had a laser display and I watched Smoking the Bandit on Laserdisc mm. probably a hundred times oh, yeah. well, in the original, like in the like 1979. Yeah, or no, well, it, it, was. It, it can bear that many screenings. That's a very entertaining movie. But you know, but the thing is, though, uh, you know, I don't. I'm not connected to Netflix basically because I don't want my computer connected to my television. I don't. I, yeah. I you know, it's like I, I've never felt the need to make that bridge or make that leap. Uh, uh, you know. I can jerk off the porn on my laptop. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I don't. I don't need it on my big flat screen. Well, all right. In fact, YouTube and a big flat screen and my couch. That's. <laughs> I might never get anything done. So better to keep it in an office. All right. Uh, but I think it's one of the- <laughs> studio calls. Quentin, it's been twelve years since you've written. Anything. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hooked up my computer to the TV. All right. I'm there completely dehydrated. I have jerked <laughs> off more than a human being possibly, possibly jerked off. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I- YouTube on a flat screen. It really is a bad idea. It should be ghettoized uh, to, <laughs> to an iPad, all right? I, I, but I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about, you know, doing a movie and converting it to 70 millimeter and doing this roadshow because it's it, – that's the type of thing 
as people, it's not that I think people will go to the movies less. I just think they need to feel like there's a reason for them to go to the movies. And there are some movies where you go, yeah, I could just watch that on TV. But when you hear like, oh, this is shot and it's, it's going to be shown in 70 millimeter, you're going to see a wide aspect rate. This is going to be really gorgeous. That's an experience to get people. So I don't think that the experience of going to the movies is ever really going to go away. It's just going to become slightly specific. Yeah, no, I look, I, I, I definitely agree. I mean, to me, it seems ludicrous that movie theaters would uh, switch over to digital projection for the simple fact that, well, when you can get everything you want at home, right, more or less, the one thing most people couldn't get at home is 35 millimeter projection on film. That was <laughs> that there, that was a reason to leave the house. That was a reason to go and see a film at the theaters. Um, so now that it's just all this bright, clear digital, it doesn't really look any different from uh, most a lot of people's big screen TVs any old way. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, you really got to you got to really think long and hard about, well, why exactly am I leaving the house? And usually I guess the answer now is, well, I really want to see that movie right now. I don't want to wait. Yeah. You know, I saw Creed the other day because I wanted to see it right now. I wanted to see Stallone play Rocky again, and I didn't want to wait to see it on uh, – uh, Cinemax or Showtime, but um, most you know, but a whole lot of movies I can just as easily wait until they're on that that system, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll, I'll watch it there. And I'm hard pressed to you know, uh, yeah. And the, the, there's the random comedy every once in a while. Um, uh, one of the last times I noticed something like that actually made a difference, though, was um, American Hustle. Mm-hmm. Because I saw American Hustle within the first, like, two weeks of it playing. And it was one of the best times I had at the movie theaters. Uh, the audience just – just, just, it was just it – was it was hilarity. I mean, everyone enjoyed it so much. It was so funny. There was kind of rolling laugh, laughter to it. It had a really good end. You didn't quite see how good the – you didn't quite know it was going to have the ending it had. And then it built up to it and it really kind of laid you low. And then it was just a rollicking – rollicking experience whenever i talked to some people uh and they were like uh it was good but i really didn't realize what how everyone's going so nuts for it i'd start asking them questions they didn't see at the theater they watched the the academy screener right Mm -hmm. home alone yeah they watched it they watched the academy screener yeah no it's good it's a good movie i mean don't really understand why everyone's making such a big deal about it uh (laughs) But then if you saw it in a movie theater, it was one of your best uh, experiences you had at the theaters that whole year. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think... That- I felt the same way about get, get Him to the Greek. Oh, yeah. Get Him to the Greek. I saw it at the Vista, all right, on the Saturday at Open. I mean, it was hilarity. People literally were rolling in the fucking aisles. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's what people forget that there is a certain aspect of it. A film that's communal. Yeah, right. like you need you go see it with other people. You commune with other human beings, and you you know. But well, unfortunately, I you know I, I would love to make that case. Um, I don't see the cause and effect being that drastic. All right, unfortunately, you know, to the detriment. I don't see that cause and effect being that drastic, except for a couple of exceptions like that. Uh, 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 you know, I uh, I mean. 
as much as I like Creed, I, I wasn't as into the final fight as I was Rocky Two. Right. All right. Where I'm like, yeah, rah, 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 <laughs> yeah, you know. So I mean, conceivably, I could have waited, you know, uh, for Creed and watch it on Showtime. But I actually just wanted to see it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I saw it. So uh, if there was any movie that I thought could open around the same time as Star Wars and still do okay, it would be one of your films. Like, as soon as I heard it, it was like, 25th, that's good. Oh, actually, I think Quinn's going to be okay. You know, because you have... It's well, we like, are limited. All right, thank God. All right. Yeah, but it's still such a... It's, it's, uh, uh, it's We're a, getting on the board. All right. And then, like, you know, come January, we start swinging our dick around. All right. But uh, on the 25th, we're just, you know, hey, we're here, guys. You know, we're, we're, we're officially on the board. <laughs> Well, Tim Roth was here, and he was talking about shooting the movie, and he was saying, like, the thing about the way you were shooting it was that – he was like, oh, it's, he essentially said you couldn't just stand around while the, other person, while the other person was acting because he said because of the aspect ratio. Like, everything was in. You were almost – like, you were mm-hmm. – they, they had to really learn mm-hmm. how wide everything was. Well, it was actually – it was – And he loved it. Well, it was really interesting in that regards. Um, and it's like one of the things when I watched the movie – uh, it's one of the things where I, I I look at and I actually can notice. Oh wow, that's um. I wasn't thinking that much about it when I was doing it because I was just you know part of part of movie making or I guess any kind of creative endeavor is you know. You're not thinking that much about it. You're just you're you're responding to it. You're dealing with it. You're you know. So it's like uh, okay, now we're going to do this shot. So then I'm I, I don't have. Um, um, gigantic storyboards that say exactly where the frame's going to be. Mm-hmm. I think I know what I want to do, and I usually come up with a shot list, unless it's a, a big deal shot, uh, that morning after we kind of rehearse the actors a little bit. And uh, But then I gotta, we got to place it, and i got to frame it. Okay, there. So he's in there, and that's in there. So, but it's more osmosis. I'm just I'm dealing with it at the moment. But when I look at it after the fact, it's one of the things, more than the other movies that I've seen, where I go, oh, wow, I've... I've, I've I have technically I've become a better director over the course of the years and I can kind of see it in this movie more than the other ones because of like literally just things like uh, um, I think my framing always was pretty – my compositions were always pretty good but just kind of the, the blocking. Mm. It's the blocking which is, a, you know, which is the thing and it's, it's kind of invisible and I wasn't thinking about it that much. But in this movie in particular um, because the frame is so big and also because you're tr- – you know, it is a claustrophobic situation, a tense situation dealing with uh, 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 these people trapped in this room. That there's the foreground play going on, whatever actors are, are in the foreground of, of the composition, and, and usually that means you're following them and you're, they're talking and they're dealing with them. But then there's the actors in the background who are doing something else. But both plays need to be followed. So when Bruce Stern throws a cup of coffee and you hear, my eyes! My eyes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah well, here you would see my eyes. Right? You'd see a guy get hit in the coffee. All right? Uh, 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 unless I don't want you to. Yeah. Right? Unless I don't want you to. And th- No, there's a big section in the film where I have to ignore everybody else because they would, uh, you can't see what they're doing at that given moment. But for the most part, you really kind of need to follow where everybody is. And if I were to take you, Chris, and stick you in the movie okay. by, by the bar right. and say – Walk to the potbelly stove. You've got to know your geography right. of this place to know where the potbelly stove is, and I think most viewers would be able to do that. Yeah. Do you, uh, how do you when you have such a strong point of view about what you want to do, and then you have this amazing team of actors? How much? How collaborative is it with them? Like, what are they bringing, and what are you? What are you taking to them, and what are they bringing to you? Um. 
Well, you know, for the most part, the script is the script. Um, and so we're all we're all working from the same page, literally, as far as as far as that's concerned. But um, but then you know, uh, but usually that script was written in my bedroom months and months earlier. But you know now we're on the actual set, or now we're shooting in the woods or whatever, like it would be in, in Hateful Eight, and um, and so now you can take advantage. Of uh, uh, you know there can be disadvantages, but you but there's also advantages, and it's your job to take advantages of them. Um, I mean, like um, I won't use hateful eight as an example, but like just um, when you're making a movie, you know, maybe you have a scene that takes place in uh, uh, Joe Schlamoka's house, and so you look at about maybe four different houses. And you th- imagine a couple of the scenes that are written, how they would take place. If I actually always try to, even if I don't like the house, I try to imagine how, if I had to shoot it there, mm-hmm. how I would. Because it actually gives you some eyes into mm-hmm. your material, uh, sort of fresh. And so maybe, uh, you know, you hadn't ever thought about this in the writing, but maybe they have a very interesting staircase in the house. And so now Joe Schlamoka and Joe Schlamoka's wife are having uh, some sort of a confrontation or something. But now it's different because there's a staircase. I can maybe put her up there. And maybe she's in the bedroom and so she's talking down to him and he's talking up to her. And at some point in the scene, something that they say is so compelling that either she comes down or he goes up to uh, uh, confront her. Now, no, that you know, uh, but now literally just being in that room and contemplating that staircase, mm. all right, allows the scene to have a different vibe that could go on. And maybe now, maybe you don't even like that house, but now I know I need a staircase. Right. Uh, well, yeah, and then yeah. that's again, that's <laughs> listening to your environment. You're listening. Yeah, yeah. You're paying attention to your environment. And then, you know, and, but like okay, uh, the, it's me paying attention to the environment. It's me uh, uh, figuring out how I can create different dramatic tensions depending on um, on the stage. Itself, but also, but just also dealing with uh, the actors and the reality the actors can add actually the exact same thing. Well, now we're here, and let's go through it. And don't and you, it's not just um, uh, okay. And now at this point in time, you walk over to the wall. Well, why am I walking over the wall? Because I fucking told you to walk <laughs> over the wall. All right. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> why Why am I walking over the wall? Is a legitimate question. That me as the director and the writer, especially as the writer-director, should be able to answer. You need to answer every question. Oh, yeah. Other than that – other than it's just a cool shot. Right. Mm. You know? Um, and look, and it might actually be that you've come up with some interesting uh, uh, version of coverage that requires him to be over there and him to be uh, – I'm pointing at one side of the wall in this way and I'm pointing the other side uh, and this fellow over there needs to be over there. Uh, and that can be legitimate, but they have to get there in an honest way. Right, and that's not just for the – to serve a cool shot. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean if it is, you really need to start thinking twice about it You know, uh, if, if that's the whole idea. Um, but, you know, but those are all the things, frankly, that um, – uh, you know, those give uh, those are the uh, those are the textures that give scenes depth and make them dense and you know uh, uh, make them really chewy. It makes them there's a lot of there there. Hopefully, if you've done all that work, and uh, and there is an aspect that as literary as my scripts can be, they are surface. 
its surface. It's good surface. I'm real proud of the surface, and the surface can, you know, and you know, and well, what what makes it more than surface is your imagination as you read it, because when you read material, often you you you, especially in my scripts, you make it in your head. Now you're the other ingredient that's giving it depth, but now I'm taking out your imagination. Now it's about we're actually just doing these pieces, and then. Uh, all that aspect that we've been talking about, that minutia, that's the bedrock, actually. Oh, nice. Okay, so I just want to, as we're sort of winding this down, just in... Tr- I hope I didn't get too lost no, on No, 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 no. It's, oh, it's, yeah. it's amazing. And and I just wanted to, I wanted to give this the sort of Comic-Con wrap-up vibe, which is Twitter questions, which I occasionally, but very rarely do on the podcast, but I felt like, you know, we would sort of... Reimagine Hall H a little bit. So imagine you're in seven. What do you think about Daredevil on Netflix? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're we're here to talk about April Eight. It's very very nice that they're doing that. Obviously, you're dressed up like Daredevil. Yes, exactly. uh, Maybe I dressed up like Daredevil for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) I. I... I've been. I walked into every wall as Matt Murdock in the room. Well, you have to cover Maybe, up the eyes. Yeah. So I can. I can open my eyes now. All yeah. right. There's not going to be. Hey, Quentin. Questions. There's other ways to see. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is from uh, this is from Carol Channing Tatum, which is a great name on uh, Twitter. <laughs> Carol Channing. Tatum. <laughs> oh, I sure can't wait to be in this stripping movie. <laughs> corn. I don't remember eating corn. Uh, <laughs> this is classic Hollywood story. Google it. Um, is there a song you wanted to use in a soundtrack to which you couldn't get the rights? I imagine that's probably the case. Yeah, uh, uh, the closest, f- the most famous one, all right, as for, uh, I guess, famous example was, um, uh, I have two issues of this. One wasn't a song, one was, it's a, it's a garment, but it's, it, it's, it, it fits into this genre, was, uh, uh, in Pulp Fiction. Uh, when uh, Marcellus is brought into Russell's old room mm. and uh, he's sodomized by Maynard and Zed. As I learned when I was 11. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is he trying to leap over him? <laughs> Mom! What's he eating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can't quite seem to bite down is on it. Is that a jawbreaker? <laughs> the, the song that I wanted to be playing that they that, that the the hillbillies would be uh-huh. playing I wanted them to be playing my Sharona <laughs> <laughs> well if you think about my Sharona you realize what a good butt fucking beat that it has bom 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 ba 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 I think you know? that's why they wrote it that yeah, way right yeah. that's why they made it wrote that song you know um <laughs> And so, uh, why would they say no? Yeah. So the knack had two. The uh, two people in particular wanted their song. One was us at Pulp Fiction. The other one was Ben Stiller for uh, Reality Bites. <laughs> and <laughs> go figure. Yeah. Uh, they went with Reality Bites as opposed to me. Not that I knew that they could only do one song per year, but apparently that, that, that was the law. Well, Reality Bites had like right, four uh, butt fucking scenes, and yeah, I don't yeah. understand why they had a problem. With it. But also, but in that same vein, on Pulp Fiction, one of the things that I, and it was written in the script, and I really regret it not being in the movie to this day. And apparently, the leader of the group has said it's one of the biggest regrets of his entire career is uh, during the Butch 
scene with Fabian, uh-huh. his little mm-hmm. French girlfriend. Uh, I wanted her to be wearing a Frankie Says Relax shirt. <gasps> oh. And the Frankie Goes to Hollywood guy uh, said no. And apparently, but, uh, but uh, much, to, uh, uh, much to his credit, he said he has regretted it oh ever God. since. Oh. <laughs> Why? Did he ever give a reason? Why? They were just like, oh, we just don't. Yeah, he just, just didn't respond to it. That's so weird. <laughs> I mean, especially by the time Pulp Fiction came out, you know, Frankie says relax T-shirts were about ten years out. Oh yeah, oh, no, you, you would. Think oh no, so. it was. Oh no, that that was it was that was part of the thing actually. That it was like past its time, and you <laughs> you would think like, oh, it'd be really nice if there was some resurgence. I think he was just you know he was just uh, in particular about it. Sure, or I whatever. mean, like, yeah. the Frankie goes the Frankie says relax shirt could have had the Travolta resurgence after that movie. He, it would have been awesome. Am I, am I wrong? I mean, no. if she was sitting in that shirt in that movie at that time. I mean, it was a it was a wonderful it was a wonderful paint stroke. What you need to do? What you need to do is the Pulp Fiction Frankie says relax re release where you just digitally put the shirt on her in that scene, and that's the only thing you change about the movie. Uh, except you know, if if, if 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 that becomes a thing in the future, that would be one of the things I would consider. Uh, okay, this is a, this is a, this Instead of butt fucking, they're handling walkie talkies. That's yeah. a different <laughs> This is uh, this is actually a great. Qu- I, I enjoyed this question. This is from at b uh, underscore crow. Uh, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Oh yes, it is. Absolutely agree. No, actually, no. But we've actually it's it's our second year in a row at the New Beverly. Uh, a lot of the different revival houses around here. Oh, little, I went. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last year. Uh, uh, latch onto a movie to show. Like, we can't show Poseidon Adventure uh, at New Year's Eve because uh, the uh, American Cinema Tech mm-hmm. always makes it a point. But now we own Die Hard for Christmas Eve. <gasps> and we show Die Hard every Christmas Eve. And, then, and this year we're showing it in an, uh, another great double feature christmas theme action movie is uh, we're showing it with Three Days of the Condor. Oh, cool. Which also plays during Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is from at Obi Wentz. Any chance we'd see a return of Johnny Destiny ever? <laughs> Very doubtful. <laughs> Destiny turns on radio again. Yeah. Part two. All right. Uh, you already talked about song. Uh, J Red Five says, if the opportunity was you could direct a Star Wars movie, what type of story would you want to tell? Huh. Um. My take would, I guess, would, 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 um, I'd look I, the actual answer to the question is I would be more inclined to do a, a Star Trek kind of thing rather than Star Wars. And I you like and Star Wars both, and buddy. everything, but you know, but I, uh, so what uh, would you do with a Star Trek movie then? Um, let's workshop this right now. I'm ready. <laughs> well, frankly, to tell you the truth, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've, I actually, I haven't considered it, considered it like I'm going to do it. All right. But I did. Web spin a little bit about the idea. Like I, I'm definitely a fan of the original series, and I'm definitely, um, in particularly, a fan of um, William Shatner. Great. I mean that that's my key into the series is William Shatner. Um, and one of the things I liked about J.J. Abrams' movie was the fact that um, I think they kind of ended up. I didn't realize that my editor disc- told me that. Let me put it like this. I was really disturbed when I saw the second one uh, because I didn't really care for the second one that much. It wasn't horrible. It just it didn't it, it didn't ring any of the bells that the first yep. one did. But it really bothered me that Benedict Cumberbatch, was, Cumberbatch or whatever his name is, all right, uh, um, uh, 
was playing Khan. Right. And uh, it really bothered me. And part of the reason that it bothered me, it was like, well, wait a minute. That just doesn't work. I mean, the thing that I liked about the first one is they are, you know, uh, Chris Pine is playing William Shatner. And Zachary Quinto is playing Leonard Nimoy. So all those things that happened in the Star Trek universe will happen later. Yeah. So thus, Benedict Cumberbum can't be... <laughs> Con, because Ricardo Montalban is con, right. and that is... You just needed to say, fine, Corinthian lady. Yeah, that's the deal. Then my editor was explaining, no, they actually have a wrinkle in it that, that makes that not necessarily the case. And I, I still didn't... He tried to explain it to me, and I still didn't understand it, and I actually thought it was... Uh, Almost like a crappy lawyer loophole because no, the, the wrinkle, idea that the wrinkle doesn't work. The wrinkle is that it's a, the timeline's been reset. So everything from the point of the Star Trek 2009 Star Trek, everything from that point forward is now going to be a slightly different or right. very different timeline mm-hmm. than the original series was. So anything that predates that, you're still you still have Captain Archer of the original Enterprise, the NX01. Mm-hmm. You would still have Khan of Space Seed. You would still have him uh, sent off on the bounty, and it yeah, would still absolutely. be Ricardo Montalban. Absolutely, it's got to be Ricardo. Mon- you know, no, no, the, the the con stuff doesn't work at all. Yeah, all right, in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he can't just come Would back. Would you say and it's a, a bad construct? You're welcome. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm but, sorry. I just diarrhea. <laughs> but I do think what could be done, and especially rather than just coming up with uh, um, hokey space stories, except uh, they might be stuck. They might be stuck doing. I mean, you know. Hokey or unhokey, they could be fantastic. Yeah. All right, uh, I think they might be—they might have trapped themselves a little bit by the simple fact that they have to use all the crew now right. in all the films. They've established it so much that you, you know you need Uhura, you need yep. uh, a Scotty, you need Bones, you need all that stuff going on all the time. Everybody has to ha- be represented in some big story where they all have to deal. Where I actually think it could be cool because some of those episodes are fantastic, and the only thing that limited them was their eight, you know, was their sixties uh, uh, budget yeah. and uh, eight days shooting schedule. And even having said that, they did a magnificent job. But uh, you could take some of the great uh, classic Star Trek episodes and just easily expand them to ninety minutes right. or more, right? And really do some really amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, you know, and like you know, I mean, the obvious one would be sitting on the edge right, of forever, right. but that's what everyone would go to. But but yeah. but but there's a reason why everyone would go to that. <laughs> it's one of the classic stories of all time, yeah. and one of the great time time travel stories. However, in thinking about that concept even further, though, I think one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever written was for Next Generation. And I, I'm, I like Next Generation. I'm, I'm, no way am I the fan or have I seen even remotely as many as uh-huh. I, I had the first season. But there was that episode, uh, uh, The Free Enterprise, which is the one where uh, – um, it was actually written by a fan, frankly, who had been working on the show. And they said, well, you should write an episode. And he wrote this episode that was fantastic. And it was like – I think in the second season – and uh, Denise Crosby's character, Tasha Yar, had already died in the first season. Uh-huh. And Whoopi Goldberg was now on the show. Yep. And uh, they get to a distress they, – they, they're responding to a distress call um, from an uh, Enterprise ship that was protecting a Klingon ship that was being attacked by a bunch of Romulans. 
Yesterday's Enterprise. Yesterday's Enterprise. So that's season three. Yeah. Okay. And I'm back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually think that is one of the greatest, uh, uh, not only space stories, but the way it dealt with the mythology. Oh, yeah. Of the whole thing. I mean, it was just, and like, that actually could bear yeah. a two-hour treatment. And filling in the blank of filling the Enterprise C and like absolutely. what that was like. Because the whole thing on that episode that was so cool is uh, they saved this ship. But literally do they know by saving this ship – it's actually in a different time period, but they don't know that. So they save it and they bring the, this crew up on board. But what ends up happening is um, because they screwed up with the timeline, uh, everything changes. And you realize – but the, the characters don't know it, but we know it. Because and Guinan knows it because she's it, got a sixth sense. Yes, exactly. And the thing about it is, is it turns out that the Klingons and uh, and, and the humans on Earth have been having this like hundred year war, basically that's been going on, and it's just the bloodiest war imaginable in the history of any universe. And uh, the uh, the uh, Rorf, the Klingon guy, he's not there because mm-hmm. you know, the, there's there's no friend there's no, there's no friendship thing going on. The uniforms are all like uh, militarized, uh, militarized and fascistic, yeah. and um, and so literally, once they start piecing together what's going on, they realize that by them. Uh, that there, uh, that obviously what was going on is the um, uh, there was definitely uh, tension as there always had been between the Klingons and, and the uh, uh, the Federation. But when a bunch of Romulans were going to destroy a Klingon ship and um, uh, a Federation ship r- r- uh, uh, responded to its Mayday call, uh, it ended up that the Klingons were all dis- uh, were all destroyed by the Romulans, but so were uh, the Federation ship was all destroyed. Well, the very fact that a Federation ship would die, all hands on board, trying to protect the Klingons in a, in a in an emergency situation, and Klingons put honor above all else, that chilled the war out. But without that happening. Mm-hmm. The war has gone on for like maybe a hundred years or so, and then even and then Picard even like breaks down and says, "The Federation is losing the war. The Klingons are going to win." That episode. It's (laughs) worse than anyone says. There was the alternate 1985. That's Uh because Biff got got the Gray Sports Almanac, and that's why they splintered off into a separate time, different time travel situation. But that's what reminds me of the I Dream a Genie episode where they get. Yesterday's new, where they get tomorrow's newspaper, and then Major Healy is actually at the racetrack. <laughs> you know why didn't one time? Why didn't one time Genie like like blip in a friend, yeah. like a hot friend for Major Healy? He was such a hapless. I you know agree. it's like hey uh, Tony maybe uh, yeah, could, yeah. Uh, could, a, could a buddy get laid once in a while? Like there wasn't one time. Okay, this is the last question that we'll let you go. This is, I think this is a great question. This is from at Andy Catfield. Uh, who was uh, no? I'm sorry. At Matt failed. Who's Andy Catfield on Twitter? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite death scene you've done? Oh, that I've done. Uh, my favorite death scene. Huh. That's interesting. What would be my favorite death scene? Um. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Um. <laughs> You know, I guess um, – well, I think the the funniest one is uh, 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 Marvin getting his head blown off, all right? And, and 
in Pulp Fiction. I'll, I'll, I'll put that up with Buster Keaton and Tati and you know, uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy and the rest of them. All right? Uh, the rest of the greats. Um, I guess one of my other favorite death scenes, and, and frankly, it's just because of the timing of it in the film, mm-hmm. is when Chris Penn shoots the cop yeah. right in the chair in Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> well, he was going to kill the cop. Oh, you mean this guy? Boom, boom, boom! <laughs> and just the timing of that squib is just perfect. <laughs> well, Hateful Eight opens just December 25th, Christmas Day. Uh, great day to go see the movie. How many- is it screening at the New Bev on, on Christmas? No, no, we... Uh, uh, um, uh, we don't have too big for that screen. Yeah, it's, uh, people uh, absolutely have to go to the New Beverly if they're ever in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah. go to the New Beverly. But we no, but when we open on the we, we open on the eighth uh, 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 wide, and uh, we'll, it'll be playing in thirty five millimeter at the New Beverly uh, from the eighth on. <laughs> Excellent. That's where I saw Django, and it was the greatest. It was fun. Though. And then you're going to go make the and, uh, and usually when you see it at the New Beverly, you'll see it with uh, awesome uh, trailers, a, a trailer collection that I put together in yes. particularly for the hateful eight. Exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so then you're going to do that, and then the next one you're going to make is going to make yesterday's Enterprise into a movie that I think that was look I've considered that I, I, ultimately it's not worth me spending a year and a half or two years of my life on it but somebody should we'll do it we'll split the time somebody should do it and then <laughs> but, uh, but, you, but you would agree though that would make a great movie that'd make a fantastic movie mm-hmm. uh, and then you can if you want you can come direct my comedy special in January <laughs> <laughs> right in of January, course yeah okay yeah, yeah you'll be done yeah. what are you talking about timing will be great <laughs> I not well. I didn't direct it. She did, but I was there. I was a producer on it. I uh, I, I produced a, a, a Julia Sweeney did a movie version of her one man oh, yeah, show. Yeah, Gossip yeah. Ha. Gossip Ha. I saw I saw the live version of it. Yeah, yeah. She's wonderful. Oh, she's terrific. And I produced that movie, so I was there when we did it and everything. So I asked. So it was she officially directed it, but I said, why don't you do that one one more time just for like a, a performance thing? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I cannot thank you enough for being here. Oh, it's You've fun. You've been more than generous with your time, and I'm excited about Hateful Eight, and it's really been great. You know. Next year, we have a more. Are you already? Is your brain already under your next? No, 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 no. That's like that's kind of how that that's how it works for me. Uh, uh, like I was describing earlier, it's like it's about this, and then when when this is over, it's like okay, it's over. It's officially over, and then I it's like start, then I like start getting caught up in whatever uh, uh, um, uh, fixations that I have when I'm free, and then uh, <laughs> you look at me like strange with it. <laughs> uh, uh, but then I. Uh, um, uh, but then I just start figuring out what I'm going to do next. And like I said, I kind of explore a bunch of different things, and one takes hold. Uh, but I never uh, quite know what that is. Can I borrow the pussy wagon? I have the pussy wagon. I know. Can I borrow it? I, <laughs> it conceivably, that could happen. Uh, <laughs> just take my wife out of the town yeah. and that. That, that, that could happen. I'm not saying it's going to, but it could. We, we live pod- in a universe where that is possible. We end the podcast by saying, uh, by telling people to enjoy their enjoy your burrito. That's our kind of sign-off. Would you sign us off the podcast? Uh, okay, with uh, enjoy your burrito? That's it, yeah. Okay, everybody, uh, this is the end of this podcast. Enjoy your burrito. Well done. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe.
killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Kira. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.